and how life is meant to be lived, and what's really the structure of reality, and what's an illusion, and what's short-lived, and what's going to pass away. And uh, I am, as I grow older, not that I'm that old, but old enough, I do have a deeper and deeper appreciation of the scriptures and what it is to hold up truth and what is true, and that we hold it up for our generation, and that others will come behind us and they will do the same, and others after them until Jesus comes. It's a wonderful thing all over the world. And uh, so today we're going to do Psalm 146. I'm going to ask that we pray and let's commit our time to God. It is, I, I really was uh, so fired by uh, my time in Scripture this past week that I hope it comes across here uh, to all of us. So let's pray. And uh, Father, we thank you for all those men and women we saw up there and uh, their names, the faces. Lord, we recognize some of them. Uh, some of us know a little bit more churches than others, Father, but we bless you that none of us knew all those names. And Lord, that you've worked through so many other millions upon millions of people that, Father, you know their name and they're right in the front seat of heaven. They've served you faithfully. And so, Father, we want to serve your purposes in our generation, each one of us individually and us corporately as a church, that we'd fulfill your purposes here in Queens, New York City, and we would join with the rest of the church around the world in advancing the gospel. So, Lord, I pray, help us, Father, to, to uh, grasp revelation, to grasp your heart, to grasp your mind, Lord, to live out, Lord, life as you meant it to be lived here on earth. Set us free, Lord, from our culture and the values of the world and the evil one which so surround us and pound away at us day and night. We lift up, Lord, you this morning. We lift up your word. Open up our hearts to receive it, Lord. And take it deep within our soil to bear much fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have been in a series on Psalms uh, for the past few months. And I've mentioned more than once that uh, the power of music has been documented well all around. There's an American Music Therapy Association, which goes back to 1950. It's very interesting. And just like there's physical therapy and occupational therapy, there's music therapy. People get PhDs in that because they understand that music addresses some cognitive issues and physical issues and biological issues, and it, music changes people's lives. And, and uh, neuroscientists have talked about this for decades, that something deeply wired in our brain is touched by music like nothing else. And, and, uh, and we've talked about how God's given us the Psalms, which is a songbook. These were meant to be sung, and, and that the center of what it meant to be God's people is that we're a singing, worshiping community to God. And uh, that singing to God and worship touches us in our depths in a way that's beyond our intellect and is able to enable enables us to, to grab hold of what is true on a level beyond simply studying. There's a place for studying, but there is a place for music which grabs us and enables us as a community to know God, love God, be loyal to God, and be passionate for God. It brings us to a place like nothing else. And so we are meant to be people who, who learn to worship, that discipline ourselves to worship. We're commanded to worship and to sing before him. So put the first over right now. We're almost done. And uh, here's what we've touched on in the last, this is our 14th message. We've done Psalm 96, 103, Psalm 57, Psalm 63, 27, 139, 23, 51, 73, 46. We've been through a lot. And we've talked about it as all different types of psalms from, from all places, whether you're full of thankfulness or lamenting, complaining, doubting, or suffering. And uh, today is, the la is Psalm 146. So we're actually going to have one more psalm after this, 
uh, the week after Easter. And next week's Palm Sundays. We're going to take a pause for Palm Sunday and Easter. And then we'll finish it uh, the Sunday after Easter. And, but today I want, I want to go to Psalm 146, which I'm going to call Singing the Heart of God for the Poor. And um, uh, this was something they sang about. They're called Hallelujah Psalms, another type. And there's certain psalms in this category that they were part of their worship experience that they would sing about God's heart for the poor and the humble and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. It's so interesting that was part of their psalm book and part of their life together that they intentionally sang about it. Isn't that interesting? I don't think of us singing songs about that. But there's a whole class of psalms that do. And Psalm 146 we're going to look out today. So, again, the reason you want, to, you want to listen today is because this psalm, like all psalms, will change your life if you'll let it sink in. And we don't really have a song written about Psalm 146, but... Uh, Nonetheless, we'll study it and uh, hopefully let it go in. So let's, let's read it. Uh, actually, it starts in verse 1 and 2. Let me just introduce it. it. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise you, the Lord of my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. So it starts out with saying, you know, four times, Praise the Lord, commands us, praise the Lord. Then he goes, I will praise the Lord personally, O my soul, which means literally, praise the Lord, O my throat, which means in Hebrew, Throat, they meant by the depth of your emotion, my uttermost being, everything I've got, Lord, let it praise you. And then he declares in verse 2, I will. Again, it's interesting in Psalms, you get this a lot. I will praise the Lord. I don't feel like praising the Lord, David says. This is not written by David, but the author says, I will praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. And, and he makes a commitment that I'm going to praise you, Lord, as long as I live. Until I die, Lord, my life is going to be a, an expression of praise and worship, no matter what comes my way in life. And again, we did all these different types of psalms. No matter what valley I'm walking through, no matter how much doubt is filling my mind, no matter how miserable I am and wonder where you are, God, for having deserted me, I will sing to you and praise you, O God. And so he declares that right here in verses 1 and 2 in a very strong way. And he said, this is my main purpose of life. I stopped right there. I said, wow. I mean, his main purpose in life was praise of God. And now he's going to give the reason and the rest of the psalm. And this is what makes it a psalm of um, a hallelujah psalm. And he's saying that we don't know when this was written, but most scholars believe it was written during the time of exile. You know, whether it was the Assyrian exile or the Babylonian exile, we're not really quite sure. But a time when they were under other kings, other rulers. Uh, and this, this psalm lifts up God as the king. And he's a very different type of king because, remember, the theme of psalms is the word hesed, his loyal love. The Hebrew word is hesed, very important word, God's loyal love. And they always hung on to that, God's loyal love. No matter, that was the anchor. God was loyal and he was loving. It was an emotional, it was a commitment from God to his people. But he's going to say here that that. God, you're different than all the other kings. You're not like any kings on the earth that basically live for themselves, their own ego, their own palace. People serve them. And they're not interested very much in the marginalized and the poor and the orphan and the widow and those who are politically not in line with them. But you, God, you're the king of all kings, and you are very different. And he praises God for his hesed in the way it works out on the earth because God is a God who has a heart for the poor. And he worships, he's ecstatic, and I think you'll see why hopefully by the end of it, that God is like that towards the marginalized and the economically and the politically oppressed and the uh, ignorant. So let's read it. Beginning at verse 3, as he kind of, he declares, I'm going to praise you, and here's what he says. Verse 3, do not put your trust in princes 
in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. That's the kind of king he is. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. All right. Now, next one. No, no, let's go back. Let's go back. Go back to the first one. All right. Oh, I forgot to write this. I can't believe it. All right. Here's the main theme. I'm working on PowerPoint. Then I found out that my fifth grader knows how to use PowerPoint. It was very intimidating. <laughs> but the theme, which I forgot to write, which I'll hopefully be on later, is that God has a special love for the widow. Well, for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. That's the theme of the psalm. And for this, he is singing to God, that God has a special love. He loves everybody, but he has a special love for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the alien, or the immigrant, as you'll see in just a few moments. Now, that would be translated today into the handicapped, the elderly, and the, those living with age, the prisoners. Anyone excluded or neglected in life, because whether it's race or economics or education or gender or age or any other reason, they find themselves on the outskirts, I like to call it the margins of life. God has a special love for them because he's a God filled with chesed, filled with this loyal love. And so what I did as I started this study was I, I last Monday I just took a few hours and I just looked up every verse that had widow in it, orphan, alien, fatherless. And by the time I was done, I was, over, I was overwhelmed. Now, I'd done it before, but not quite in that level of detail. I wrote down every verse, looked it up, and just allowed it to kind of sink into me. And I really, I was, I, I was just, I was so excited. I felt I was done for the week. I said, I'm going to bring these verses, just lay them out before everybody, and let God grab hold of us. Because I was so, I was so, over, I was so overwhelmed. Now, I thought, now that I'm a PowerPoint expert, emerging expert, that is, I thought I'd throw them all up and we'd have a great time, but my wife says, you will kill Sunday, so I will not do that. But put up, I did write down some of the verses, and I just want to read to you the ones that are in bold, because really, it's everywhere. It's so overpowering that I think it's meant to overpower us. But Deuteronomy 10, for example, 18 says, he, God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the alien. Now, alien would be equivalent to an immigrant. Immigrants coming in today. Giving him food and clothing. And you, he says to Israel, are to love those who are aliens. All right, now he goes down to Ezekiel 16, for example. And uh, God says to Judah, the southern kingdom, says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom, referring to Israel on the north. She and her sisters, sorry ladies, tend to get a little sexist language, always talking referring to men, it's nice you get your due here. She and her sisters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. 
interesting if you read the rest of the text, and it goes on about how they desecrated the Sabbath, they ignored God's holiness. But God's Sabbath, God's holiness, serving God was always wrapped up with this issue of the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. In every passage, it ends up coming back in. And you see it especially in Jeremiah. Go, go to the next page. And uh, it's a couple of others. Proverbs 21, 13 on the top there. If a man shuts his eyes to the poor, even his prayers will go unanswered. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Uh, Jeremiah 22, 16, the next one. Let me get my pointer. It doesn't reach. Ah, there we go. All right. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. That's a pretty good verse, isn't it? Jeremiah 22, 16. And then James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after warden, orphans and widows in their distress. And uh, I could go on. I mean, I, I've got obviously other ones up there and others I didn't put in. But um, just imagine when King David and those who wrote these psalms, they wrote songs about it. I mean, I, I thought, I said, I said, I can't think of American churches that would sing about this. I said, but it's in the Psalter that this was part of their worship experience. They, 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 they didn't just study it. They sang about it, it because they knew that's how, perhaps how truth got into their lives, but it was a part of it. And, and because I think they understood that God had touched them in the gospel in their old, good Old Testament way, just like God's touched us, and that I was an orphan. Isn't that the gospel? And God adopted me and made me a son. That I was an alien. I had no home, and God gave me a home. But I was a widow in a sense of I had no husband. I wasn't married, and God married me. He loved me so much, he died for me and married me. And in fact, I was all these things. I was excluded, I was marginalized, and God came after me and loved me. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for me and lived my life and died for me and rose again, and he, he gave me life. And I, I was out there, and he brought me in. And so the understanding for, the, for, for the, those who knew God all through history, generation and generation, is this, is that's me, orphan, widow, that, that's, that's me, poor. God made me rich. And so, therefore, there was no way of understanding being the people of God except that I had a heart for this, because that was God's heart for folks who were in that position. Now, go to the next one, and, and ne next section, which, um, you know, like Israel, we were nothing special, but God put his love on us. And because we knew we were nothing special and God put his love on us, just like the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 7. So we, too, reflecting the heart of God, we put our love on people whom the world says is nothing special about them either. And we love them like nobody else on earth because we've had a transforming experience with God. Now, Jesus takes this in Matthew 25, and I would love to preach a whole sermon on it. But in Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats, but it's not really just a parable. It's a, it's a literal account of the final judgment. And Matthew, when he writes the gospel, puts it right there at the end as the final teaching. And it's a description of a real historical event. When all of human history, all the people who've ever lived in all time are all gathered in one place before the throne of God, and there is a judgment moment. And Jesus basically says in that text that the judgment is based on one's response to the widow, the poor, the alien, and the orphan. And he says, and I just wrote one verse here, at the end he says... Again, remember that some who said, you know, Jesus says, you did not give me to eat and drink and all that. And he says, they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And Jesus, he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do, the word not is the key, there was neglect, you just didn't do anything. 
You got to catch that theme. It's just the fa- it wasn't the fact that you were out there trying to oppress people. The point is, you did nothing. You didn't move. You just lived your own life as if it wasn't even happening. And he goes, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then he goes, then they will go away. And this is the incredible verse. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That was the ending of the Gospel of Matthew and the teaching of Jesus in climax in the New Testament. Now, scholars have wrestled with this all through history and said, Martin Luther, John Calvin say, oh my goodness, it's salvation by works. How could this be? How could Jesus say such a thing? And, and I will just read. You've got to catch this. Jesus is repelled by heartlessness. He is repelled. It's not, they don't go to hell because of adultery, because of lying or idolatry. They go to hell because of neglect and no movement. And the point is this, they neglected a true faith that receives Christ, receives grace from God, becomes love, or it's not true faith. And here's what Martin Luther wrote. He says, he used, Martin Luther used to say, only a believing Christian can live this way their whole life. And John Calvin wrote, true Christians, if they're regenerated truly by the Holy Spirit, will be zealous for the poor, the marginalized, the widows, and those on the outskirts of life. That is the evidence of a person having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit because their heartlessness has been destroyed. Something's happened inside of them. And so when they are even exposed, something in them, the God inside of them, moves because they've been saved by grace as a free gift from God. Interesting, isn't it? But this is, according to Jesus, the nature of the true church of the living God around the world. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, all right? Let's, let's stop. Let's go to the next one, okay, Michael? I'm going to break this down. Look, ah, there's my main, there's my sentence, okay. That's the theme of the, of the summit. God has a special love for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. I use those words because they're the biblical words that are used a lot. And, of course, we see them here in, uh, you know, in 7 and 8 and 9. But uh, I'm going to give you, basically, as I wrestle with this, four, actually, I didn't, you know, I got, I'm going to give you four, I don't know, four aspects of what this looks like, how to walk it out, I think, as, as I wrestled with it, and why this is so difficult for us today. And actually, they all begin with C, and you know I never do that. But it actually came out with C's. I said, isn't this cute? So maybe it will help you remember it. But, I want, but this is countercultural, number one. And it is, there's a whole countercultural element to this. Now, I, I remember as I was thinking about this, and I thought about it a lot this week, uh, I, I was, when I was a young man, I remember being recommended to read the book by Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. All right, how many of you are familiar with the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill? Old, old book. And actually, I, I went to Barnes & Noble to, to, to pick it up. I didn't buy it, just to read it and make some notes here. But... It's a very famous American book in our history about growing, getting rich. And Napoleon Hill uh, says, if you want to get rich, you've got to do six things. He says, first, you've got to fix in your mind the exact amount you want. So, yeah, I want to make $15 million, all right? Then he says, number two, determine what, it, what price are you willing to pay to get that, in my case, $15 million right now. That's number two. Number three, establish a definite date that you intend to get it. Okay, I'm going to get that by the year 2004, March. All right. Number four, create a definite plan to get there. Number five, write a clear, concise pay- statement of how much you want, what's your plan to get there, and by when. Write it out. And then it says, number six, read that written statement twice a day, every morning when you wake up, 
and every night before you go to bed and put it somewhere public and believe, there's a quote, believe yourself already in possession of it. That's a very famous book. And uh, I've seen many, many people read over the years. It's been recommended to me very highly. And when I was at Barnes & Noble, even just going through it, I, I had three four people stop me. Oh, what a great book. Oh, great. I know. I know. It's a great book. You know? Oh, look at me like I'm somebody important, like I'm going to be rich soon, you know? And um, I didn't want to say I'm preparing a sermon about the poor. Oh, gosh, you know? But, I mean, and it's not bad to make money, obviously, and, and I believe God does call people to make large sums of it. And, and uh, the issue is motive. The issue is the glory of God. And the issue is heart. So let's not, let's not get crazy here. And, uh, but the, the point is, in our culture, in America, in the West, I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a, you know, what America represents, I mean, many of you came to America from all over the world. For what? I mean, for prosperity, for opportunity. To, this is a great country. And, uh, you know, I love our country. And it's interesting because, but that, that passion of, for, for money and for security in, in, in worldly wealth is what makes the whole world lust to come to here. And so do you realize how difficult it is to lift up this and sing about it in our country? That God has a special love for the widow and the poor and the alien and the, and, uh, you know, the immigrant. Immigrants are taking my jobs. Prices are going through the roof. They're not even legal in this country, you know, and ba da ba da ba. You know, a friend recommended a book to me a couple weeks ago, which I'm in the middle of reading, and written by a non-Christian guy called The Twilight of American Culture. And it's, and it's so interesting because he, he, the, the guy is writing some professor, and, and he's arguing that United States culture is a lot like the Roman Empire. And uh, he says it's morally bankrupt. And he explains this whole thing. And he says what saved Western civilization when the Roman Empire went down, he says, what are the monasteries? This guy's not a Christian. He goes, I don't believe in monasteries. But he says, we need monastic orders. We need people who will renounce the values of the culture and form, not orders, but, but have a whole different set of values of what's important. And he writes this, those who will re resist the spin and the hype and who know the difference between reality and theme parks, integrity and promotion. And I said, here's a non-Christian calling for folks to preserve the culture, a monastic movement who can see through the illusions of everything that surrounds us and pounds at us from the media day and night. But you've got to, if you're going to appreciate this Psalm 146, how radical this is to sing about this and, and to live like this. And, and, and it, was, it was radical for David's day as well. It wasn't, it wasn't what everybody's going for. It's not in our hearts. And so to, to, you'll notice in verse, look at verse th 3, because he starts out by saying, don't put your trust in princes. That's the only way you'll ever live like this. I like what Eugene Peterson, he translated, translate verse 3 in the message. Don't put your trust in the hands, no, I'm saying he says, don't put your life in the hands of experts who know nothing. So that's his translation of do not put your trust in princes. It's a good translation, in mortal men who cannot save. And what he's saying there's a choice as we live through life. Where are you going to put your trust, in humans or in God? And there's only two choices, says Psalm 146. And you, and you look at people who are influential and rich and resourceful and brilliant and powerful and appear superior, and, and uh, it seems like they can deliver. And, and what Psalm says is they can't deliver on their promises. Don't put your trust in them. They're, they're going to die. They're going to become dust, and everything they plan is going to go to dust. Don't bank your life there. Bank your life on God. And uh, so, so now there's a place for experts, right? Now, if you're going to go for heart surgery... You know, don't call a New York City cop, all right? I mean, there's a place for experts and getting counsel from experts. But, but the issue is motive. The issue is the glory of God. The issue is where is my trust? 
So say, for example, you go to someone for financial help, a financial counselor or expert or whatever. We have a course going on right now upstairs, Good Sense Budgeting, which is good. I mean, those folks have a great background. And again, the culture would say the way to secure your financial future is step one, two, three, right? You know, buy a house, get yourself a good job, get yourself benefits, you know, save up, you know, retire. Here's some way to, and investing and savings are good things. But it's, there's one, one way to invest and save, which is anxiety driven. And there's another way to invest and save and get my life in order, which is trusting in God. And let's face it, the counsel you're going to get about your finances is not going to be what God says, given it shall be given to you. Give away X percent, 10% of your income, or tithing and all that. I mean, you're not going to get that from experts out there and saying the way to prosperity in some ways is to give and let it go. Or let's take, for example, stability and security. You want stability in life? Well, if you're single, get married. Quick. And get a house, get some kids, get a good education, and then you'll be set. Right? God says that's not stability. That's not security. You know, or you know what? You're single. You better get married by this age or it'll be too late. And you better have kids by this age or forget about it. God says, don't trust in experts. You trust in me. Follow me and my voice for your life. I, I didn't go on. I, you know, I thought of, I was, you know, think of university days when I was a student. And basically, people would throw out their faith based on whatever was the mode of the props in that day. And it's been a big swing. I don't know if you're aware of it, but, you know, a few decades ago in universities that, uh, you know, scientists would say, ah, the universe is random, you know, Darwin, there's no God. And, and, uh, but now, the, you know, people like Stephen Hawking and others are saying, no, no, the universe has a definite beginning and was created, apparently was designed to have human life on it. And so now, like, scientists are like, wow, there may be a God. And some people say, yeah, I believe in God. But the point is, they're trusting an expert to tell you if there's a God or not. And they say there's no God. So I don't believe in God anymore. They say there's no God. And same with a lot of doctors and medical science, you know. And, and uh, this Harvard Medical Review, now the profs are saying that contemporary medical research shows that the human mind and body are wired for God. Well, that's good. Now I believe in God. Now, in 10 years, they say there's no God. I don't believe in God anymore. I mean, and so our whole life is based on what we're hearing. I mean, we go to Judge Judy. Oprah and Rosie, and they let us know what's in, what's acceptable, and, we, and our lives are shaped by that. And they're saying, don't put, your hand, don't put your life in the hands of these people. But you put your life and you bank on God. I think of parenting as a parent here. I say, i got to get my kids now. i got to get them in, i got to get great SAT scores. i got to get them in the best school. i I, I got to get them in you know, clubs. i got to get them in music. And i got to get them in, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. And i got to get the best, uh, you know, I go crazy. And I, oh yeah, I got to pray for them sometime too, that God's going to bless them and guide them. But for some reason, the reality is the bulk of my time is the anxiety, and it's good to take care of our kids. And as a parent, I know I have to struggle with that. Is my trust in experts about my kid is going to live a healthy life based on what everyone tells me they need to be a success in life? And how our culture measures success, or is it by God? So anyway, I don't want to get crazy here, but look at in, in, in verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 9. Because there's only two ways of living in the Psalms. There's the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. I know I've been looking for an in-between myself. But the Psalm says there is no in-between. Those who are righteous, who walk with God, Psalm 1, are those who meditate on the law day and night. And this is part of the law they meditate on day and night. So they, they don't ever allow the world to suck them in about what's of value, what's true. Just like what Jesus says in Matthew 25, the real news is not what's on the newspapers. The real news is what's happening with the widow, the poor, and the alien that nobody sees. It never makes the front page of the newspaper. And what everyone thinks is so important is an illusion. It's going to pass away. These princes and experts will come to nothing. But this will last forever. That's why it says in verse 10, your God rules forever. Don't ever think for a minute, this is stupid. It's not going. This is 
God and his heart will rule forever. And don't ever question it for a minute. And so he says in verse 9, the end of verse 9, that he says the Lord sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. This is a great Hebrew word. What he says is this, literally. God frustrates the ways of the wicked. That those who choose not to follow God, to go their own, own way, God says ultimately, literally, he bends the path of the wicked so they miss their goal. That's what that word frustrates means. You want to go your own way? God says, go ahead. But I will bend your path so you will miss that goal. At the end of life, you'll be frustrated and futile and say, you may have made $10 million, but you'll realize you've wasted your life. And the goal you wanted, which was to find life, you find out you were empty. But God says, if your life is hard right now because you're running your own way, God says, I will frustrate that. I will bend it in such a way that you will miss what you're longing for. Very interesting, isn't it? Okay, number two. All right. Someday I'm going to figure out how to do it. Like when it kind of slides in. You see those PowerPoint people that have it slide in? I tried that. I couldn't figure it out. My, my fifth grader was sleeping. All right. So it's very countercultural. And I, and I hope you can appreciate how countercultural this is for all of us. But for, for the people of God in, in the Psalms and in Scripture, uh, this was a very concrete thing. Now, people use the Psalms, it's interesting, because people use the Psalms for a very private spirituality. Me and Jesus, you know, me and God. And, and I'm able to lift myself up from the world's pains. And, and that's why the Psalms of Lament, which are a third to a half of the Psalms, we love when we're in, in, in the depths of despair. We love the Psalms and we're discouraged. And, and, and this is a great source for spirituality, the Psalms. Oh, what an awesome book, right? We love it. But uh, without a passion for justice, the psalm says you're missing God. But it's just so ironic because I think in America, more than perhaps other places, how much we read the psalms for ourselves, for our own private spirituality. But the psalmist knew nothing of that. In fact, the Bible knows nothing of that. A, a spirituality that's not related to social life and what's going on around us, it's concrete. It's, it's a spirituality that works itself out in life in these kinds of issues. And, and so you've got, in, in the Old Testament, all these grace-filled laws that reflect God's hesed, his loyal love. But, and Israel had such unique laws among all the nations, things like gleaning that they, God said when there's harvest time, you, you leave the corners of the field for the poor. And God had all these kinds of things built in to reflect his hesed for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. And the book of Amos, I mean, places like that, where God says if you're in business, and lots of you are in business here, God says, I'm very concerned about justice in the business realm. And he says to the business people, if you abuse your power, let me tell you something, I hate your religion. I hate your feasts, and uh, God reflects in the whole book of Amos in a beautiful way, his deep passion, but it's very concrete. Some of you might know the name John Woolman. He's the, one of the founder Quakers, and in the 1740s and 50s, this is pre-revolutionary war. Remember, slavery was just common. It was just a given all over the colonies, and he came from a small town in New Jersey, but as he read script... Thank you. Okay. Uh, as he walked out his faith, I can understand nobody was doing this. He, he just said he, he, he started an anti-slavery movement among the Quakers. And uh, he refused to buy products that were made by slaves, the slave trade. So he didn't buy sugar, he didn't buy things like dye that was used for clothing. And when he went to a slaveholder's home, because there were so many, he would insist on paying the slaves for their work. And he really upset the people, obviously, that he was dining with. But in 1758, again, this is you know, 20, 30 years before the Revolutionary War broke out, he led the Quakers as the only denomination that removed slavery from the whole denomination. And the, the only denomination, this one guy. And he asked every slaveholder that was a Quaker to reimburse the slaves at a fair wage for all the years they worked for them. 
And if you were going to stay a Quaker, you did it. But you went and found yourself another denomination. All from one guy, John, John Woolman. And, and uh, he was quite a guy. But you see, when I say concrete, you've you got to work this out concretely. So say, for example, to work this out, this commitment to God's special love for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, like on a personal level, do you know what that means? You can't be an egomaniac. Like, you can't be living your life for self-aggrandizement, you know, and to be self-promotion, because it's a contradiction. Personally, to not be a person who is prayerful, who waits on God's to move, because you're doing it all yourself, it's, it's, it's person doesn't fit. You know, take issues of greed, envy, uh, all forms of pride, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, arrogance. Take, self, take sexual purity. On a personal level, uh, sexual distortion and using people for sexual purpose dehumanizes people. So to be about justice and dehumanizing people sexually on a personal level is a total contradiction. You follow me? It's very concrete here. It's got to work out on a personal level, even relationally. Okay, yes, with orphans and widows and being involved with people like that, but also if you're married with your friendships, with your parents, that you're walking this thing out, justice and, and righteousness in your relationships. And you're not, I, I can't tell you how many people through history have been zealous for social causes whose families were a total disaster. And, uh, but again, for Israel, it was, yes, uh, it was all wrapped up. So we're to be concerned for those excluded, those neglected because of race or gender or whatever it might be, or handicap. But uh, we concretely are involved. And this relates to institutions as well. There's institutionalized oppression that in many of you work in all kinds of things that are oppressive. And uh, structures that can be influenced by the denom, denom the, the, you know what I'm talking about, the demonic. And that's why it's so important that we're involved. We have folks who are lawyers and social workers and teachers and the media and politics. As we, and we get into these structures and we, we bring the heart of God for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. It's so important that you're in the Union 103, you know, that we need you there. God needs you there to reflect his heart and to be salt and light and bring about change. And, and whether it's housing or env environmentalism or the onboard or unborn or sexism or ageism, you name it, or, or, or poverty, that as Donald Blesch said, as a great scholar, he says, the gospel is a stick of dynamite in social structures. People who get the gospel are like a stick of dynamite when they get into structures. That's why, you know, Matt was telling me, is it a play on off-Broadway? Off God bless you, Matt. May God help you. And may I have a free ticket. All right, number three. <laughs> this is complicated. Uh, this is very complicated. I mean, what do I know about global economic policy? You know what? Very little. And uh, what do I know about immigrants' policy and the INS and welfare reform? You know, not a great deal. And so the point is, this is pretty complicated stuff. And uh, it's very easy to have a heart for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, and become judgmental towards people who don't. You're not doing enough. Why are you driving that car? And it's a great clip. This is very, you can, people who get involved in a balanced Christianity, which is what we're talking about here, that's got a deep spirituality built on prayer in the Word, that's got a heart for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, the alien, that we've, we've structured our lives in regards of where you live, what your occupation is, but you, you orient your life in such a way to move in this direction, but you're balanced. You're a person of prayer and the word and fire and worship all wrapped up. It's a very difficult balance to hold. And so what happens, folks who tend to go in this direction are angry at everybody who's not and become very judgmental and critical and you want to run away from them. And I like what Mother Teresa said. We're not social workers. We're contemplatives. We spend hours a day in prayer and the word out of which we serve. But she was always very clear. We are not social workers. We are contemplatives before God. And she always made a distinction. I always appreciated it. 
So, and I got to wrestle with the complication of limits and how do I work it out. And it's hard. It's, it's complicated. You know what? It's a pain in the neck. And you want to say, you know what? Get a job. Get a life. Get a life. We got all the reasons why they shouldn't be poor and orphans and widows and immigrant aliens. You know what? You don't even have papers. And God says, I'm just talking about I'm not, so how it works out. It's complicated. It's going to be different for every one of us in this room. We have different limits, different capacities, different things from God. And you've got to sort that out. But it's a heart of God that's in us. And it's the people of God through church history more than any other that have lifted up the name of Jesus and lifted up the heart of God for this. All right, let me close with this. And it's the cost. It's very costly. And, and this is not the general direction of the culture. Now, I hope you're saying amen to that. My family did not get me educated and come here as grand grandparents and not come as immigrants so that I would move in this direction. They came as immigrants that I would get out of New York, which most of my family has done by this point, and do something, you know, you know, for better pastures somewhere. And it's not bad to go for better pastures. It's not bad by any means. And, uh, but it's, again, we're back to heart. We're back to motive. We're back to the glory of God. We're back to my life and what it's about and because this is, the cost is I've got to get involved with people. And you know what? When you get involved with people, it's a mess. It's a mess. And it's not very fun. It's not very glorious. And it's very slow. Because you see yourself in it as well. It costs you a lot of money, too. Because you, you understand it, the, the whole direction of your life changes. I mean, you realize this, this affects your life. So this, this, this costs them money. Because you could be doing a lot of other things with your time, energy, and your finances than this. And a lot of time, a lot of energy. You know what? If you're into idolatry, it costs you that too. You can't be running after wealth as your lifelong goal or approval of your parents and people and be passionate for God's heart for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. It's just not possible. So you've got to lose all that too. And uh, you've got to believe that what God says is true. Give it, it will be given to you. Lose your life and you'll find it. The humble will be exalted. The exalted will be... You've got to believe the Bible's true. That God's going to set it all right at the end, and those who are low are going to be lifted up, those who are high are going to be brought down. You've got to believe it. So there's a cost in all this. And, and it makes sense to me. I said, I, now I know why we don't sing about this in our churches. It's so far from the culture in which we live. And many of us, we came here, we're living in New York to get out. Because we've been here, we're taught, I, I, want the, I want what everybody else has got in the church. And I realize, as Jesus said, it's for your own salvation and my salvation and the church's salvation that we are involved with the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Because when you look and get involved, it's you. You recognize, except by the grace of God, I'm poor. He made me rich. I was an alien. He, he made me a citizen in his kingdom. I was an orphan. He made me a son. Oh, my goodness. And I'm looking at this saying, I was a widow, and he made me his wife. I'm married, and he loves me forever. And so... I see, and the gospel becomes real to me. All right, let me close with this story. So I think this is for many of us how we approach it. Some, this is a story from a Russian Orthodox church. Who knows where it comes from? There was a rich and famous man who spent his life making a lot of money and wielding a lot of power over other people. And, but his religious life suffered as a result. And though he said he had faith, he never had time to practice it. But at the end of his life, uh, after he achieved a lot of success, a lot of fame, and a lot of money, he decided to go on a religious pilgrimage to a city where a famous holy man lived. So the rich man wanted to visit this holy man to learn what extraordinary act of service he could render to God in the church to express his devotion to God. And so when the, tra when the train came to, to send him on his trip to visit the holy man, the train station was packed with people, you know, and they were in awe of his achievements, and they were clapping, and, 
And they were so amazed because he didn't ride with the rich. He rode coach with the regular people. And they, you know, they clapped for him. And, and, uh, but he, he sat next to an old man, an old peasant, who also was apparently going somewhere on a pilgrimage. And he spent the whole trip telling this old man about his life, his achievements, and his influence. And he was surprised how easy it was to talk to this old man. And finally he announced, and now I'm going on a pilgrimage to visit our beloved holy man who will tell me what great deed of service I must do for the church. Well, when the train arrived at his destination, again, there was a big crowd of people outside. He figured the crowd was for him. So he stayed in the back, let everybody go out, you know, clap. He heard the cheers. And uh, so he comes to the door in his suit, and he, he walks to the door, and he lifts up his hands, and he realizes nobody's there. And uh, the crowd had left over somebody else, and he felt very humiliated. So he kind of ran after the crowd, and he said, uh, you know, who, who is it? What's going on? And the crowd said, it's the holy man. He's here. And uh, so he pushes his way through the crowd, and, and he works his way through, and he ends up, the holy man was the guy sitting next to him. And the holy man turned around, and he was horrified. I mean, he was horrified, the rich guy. And he realized he had told this man all about his greatness the whole trip. And the rich man fell on his knees, and he says, what must I do? And the holy man said, return to your home and serve the poor. But the rich man did not go on a pilgrimage to learn how to serve God. He went to some distant city because he wanted to do something extraordinary. But he wanted to do something simple and small and humble. He wasn't really interested in doing that. And I think for a lot of us, I'd love to do something extraordinary. But it's the humble stuff that stinks. It's really hard. But if we can somehow get the heart of God that David's singing about here, you know, verse 8, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Verse 9, he watches over the alien. He sustains the fatherless and the widow. If we can just get a glimpse of, the, glimpse of this, and I think Mother Teresa did, you know what? We, like Mother Teresa, will move towards, just because of God in us, we won't be able to help but move with God's special love for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. And that will be one of the marks of the people of God. And we don't just do it, we'll sing about it because it reflects the hesed of God and it ref it's a physical picture of the gospel which has saved us. All right, I'm going to invite the worship team come on forward. And uh, we're going to seek to sing it. I'm going to uh, quote from Mother Teresa. She says this. We must not drift away from humble works because these are the works that nobody will do. Therefore, it's never too small. If you write a letter for a blind person or just go and listen or take the mail for him, or visit somebody, or bring a flower to somebody, small things, or wash clothes for somebody, very humble work, that is where you and I must be. For there are many people who can do big things, but there are very few people who will do small things. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. Do not trust in experts. See the Lord seated on a throne, and you know what? It may cause us to change the way we live our lives if we really believe the Lord is a sovereign I am and he is good. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Then we're going to sing this great song, You Are the Sovereign I Am, You Are Good. So I'm going to just bow with me for a moment, okay? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would open up, <clears throat> Lord, our hearts and our minds. And, Father, that you would pour in, Lord, 
a greater measure and revelation of your heart. And that, Lord, when we see and hear, even though we may not have the answers, at least something in our heart comes alive for the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan, Lord, those who are on the margins, those who are neglected, whether they're in junior high or elementary school or in our neighborhood, Lord, because you're inside of us. So, Lord, I, I ask you, Father, to, to cause us to come alive, to renounce the things in our culture that pull us away from you, and to move towards you and what is true and what is the real structure of reality that we would not believe a lie. But we as a church, Lord, might be which be about what you're about in Jesus' name. Amen.